we are working for the sake of the people on both sides to create a better future for the people on both sides. This is a movement based on love. It's a movement based on love and integrity and acceptance and tolerance, and there's no room for hate. Hello and welcome to The Alien Chronicles, a podcast that features inspiring immigrant stories. I am your host, Sadia Khan. My goal through this podcast is to bring communities together. The recent terrorist attack in New Zealand is a grim reminder of how bigoted rhetoric is creating fear of the other, which in this case resulted in a massacre of innocent people in their place of worship. However, this otherness comes in many forms. It even exists between different immigrant communities and impacts us in different ways. It is therefore extremely crucial that during these crazy times, we talk about our similarities, we show empathy and resist the hateful rhetoric. But at the same time, we must address issues that divide us. I know it's not easy. Most of us try to avoid topics that stir emotions. Um, I'll give you an example. I have never discussed Kashmir issue with any of my Indian friends. I know what will happen if I do. And I'm sure those of you who are familiar with the issue can guess what will happen. But I also believe, given the amount of hatred and bigotry we see around us, to get out of our comfort zones and have a productive dialogue about difficult topics. Why does it matter? Because I don't think we can resolve anything unless we reach out across the aisle and understand others' point of views. And therefore, today I will attempt to address one of the most controversial and difficult issues of our times, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We've heard both sides of the conflict many times, and I'm sure most of us have our own narratives. And I and believe me, prepping for this interview was not easy because I know that today's discussion will offend some of you on both sides of the conflict. But if we are to understand each other's perspectives, we have to have these difficult conversations. And to that end, I have invited two guests who I think can help us better understand this conflict. Beth Schumann and Nizar Farsakh are both part of an organization called Combatants for Peace. In 2006, Israeli and Palestinian former combatants, people who had taken an active role in the conflict, laid down their weapons and established Combatants for Peace. The egalitarian binational grassroots organization was founded on the belief that the cycle of violence can only be broken when Israelis and Palestinians join forces. Committed to joint non-violence since its foundation, CFP works to both transform and resolve the conflict by ending Israeli occupation and all forms of violence between the two sides and building a peaceful future for both peoples. Nizar Farsakh is a Palestinian immigrant. He's also a trainer, private consultant, and a public speaker who focuses his work around leadership, negotiation, and advocacy. He used to work at the Project on Middle East Democracy in Washington, D.C., where he focused on building the advocacy capacity of Arab civil society. Before that, he served as the general director of the PLO delegation in Washington, D.C. for two years. Between 2003 and 2008, Farsakh served as an advisor to senior Palestinian leaders, including President Mahmoud Abbas and Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. He's currently involved in several nonviolence initiatives in Palestine and in the U.S. 
Beth Schumann is the executive director of American Friends of Combatants for Peace, forming the American organization a year and a half ago. Before that, she lived and worked at a poverty relief NGO in India for six years. She has a master's degree from Columbia University. Welcome, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be on my show. Thank, Thank you. you for Thank us. you for having us. We'll jump right into it. So we'll start with you, Nizar. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up? Um, and, and how did you get involved with Combatants for Peace? Uh, so I was actually born and raised in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, in 1974. My father was Palestinian from the West Bank, and my mother was Italian. Um, and I was brought up uh, on my father's stories of, uh, you know, him growing up in Palestine and what a beautiful place it was. Um, so he ingrained in me this this love for Palestine, but also his longing, like he always believed and longed to uh, to go back. And indeed, in 99, uh, we did go back uh, thanks to the peace process. Um, and I lived from 99 till 2008 in my father's village with my parents. Uh, and it was a, a very interesting experience for me because I was a diaspora Palestinian and got to know the real Palestine and the differences between the two, right? The, the difference between my father's Palestine and the Palestine I found in 99, right? So yeah. what were some of the differences, Nizar, that you saw between what your father had taught you and what the real Palestine looked like? I guess to his credit, my father always spoke about the beautiful things that he experienced growing up, right? Being, you know, they were farmers, they toyed the land, um, the, the culture and the, and the festivities, right? But also what I found was when I went there, is the difficulty of the life, how hard it is to live under occupation, the the internal challenges amongst Palestinians, uh, you know, uh, within Palestinian communities, um, and how we in the diaspora project onto uh, the people in Palestine things that are not there, right? And we kind of burden them with that projection. And at the same time, the difference between us in the diaspora that are not feeling the pain and them who have to deal with the occupation. So, for example, one of the things that shocked me is when we were, for example, uh, 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 outside of Palestine, in Dubai, for example, we would never say Israel. We would always say 1948 Palestine. But when we went to Palestine and I was in, uh, talking to my relatives in Birdeir, they would say Israel, Right. So for me, that was a, a very important dissonance because it made me realize that for them, Israel is a reality that they live every day. Us in the diaspora, we don't suffer the consequences of calling it Israel or not. We're, we're not impacted, right? And, and that was the first time I realized that the difference in our communities, the ones that are inside and the ones that are outside, and, and, and the difference between your dreams and your aspirations and your impressions about the place and the uh, compared to the reality of what's actually uh, uh, there, right? When you say that they used the term Israel and the diaspora doesn't, does it also, is it indicative of the fact that they have accepted um, Israeli state and, and they know that this is the reality and this is what they live with? Uh, is, is that the case? Exactly, like... For them, it is very clear, it's abundantly clear that Israel is not going anywhere, 
for those in the diaspora, they can entertain that idea because, again, they don't see it every day. They don't interact with it. They don't use Israeli money and they don't see Israelis, right? So that was, I, I think, what was really, like, impacted me because it made me make the difference between, you know, those who uh, profess and uh, talk about grandiose things, schemes, and those who are actually trying to make a difference on the ground, right? Those who mm. actually have skin in the game. Right. So you were there until, what, 2008 in Palestine? Correct. And then you left Palestine. Why did you leave? So as you said, like I, I worked for like five years in 2003 and 2008 uh, in the negotiating, uh, as part of the negotiating team. And as interesting and thrilling as it was, um, uh, I quickly got disillusioned because it was clear that we weren't going to get a peace deal. It was clear that... Uh, uh, we weren't going to bridge um, the, the the differences, uh, but what really broke my heart was the internal fighting between Fatah and Hamas, the two main political parties in, in Palestine. Mm. Because I did not expect that. Like the internal fighting was so bad and so shocking, so unexpected. It made me feel like I really don't know what I can contribute that is useful here. Uh, so I left dejected and hopeless and and resigned. And uh, did this, um, a friend of mine co- uh, convinced me to take this leadership course at Harvard, which teaches how, how to use narrative and storytelling in leadership. And that really helped me, you know, I got so excited about it because it, it gave me tools to access resources of hope. And I became a trainer ever, uh, ever since. Okay, now we'll bring another voice into this conversation, um, Beth Schumann. So Beth, you grew up in New York, and um, but I would like to understand what was your childhood like, and how did um, how did your views on Israel and Palestine um, shape uh, your outlook on life generally, and then obviously your involvement with combatants for peace. Uh, so. I grew up in a very traditional Jewish family in New York, um, liberal on everything except Israel, um, as many people, as many communities and families are, um, and grown up on this idyllic notion of um, Israel and the Israeli state and what it means for Jews all over the world, that it's like the only safe haven, um, that it's our backup plan for you know when the others from wherever they are, are going to come after us. This is where we go. This is where we're safe. This is the place of our freedom. Um, and so there was always a sense of um, like I, I, idealizing Israel. Um, and there was only one narrative. So the only narrative I ever learned was um, the traditional Jewish narrative Um where we want peace, but the other side doesn't want peace. We want freedom, but the other side doesn't want freedom. Um, We're doing everything we can, but the other side, you know, they just hate us because people have always hated us because we're Jews. Um, Without really realizing or recognizing that there was a totally different narrative to know. Um, So when I was a kid, I used to, as a teenager, actually, I went to Israel every other summer, uh, spent the summer there. I really uh, always had a strong relationship. Um, the last time uh, I went before meeting combatants for peace was about 15 years ago. Um, I was there in the second intifada. Um, actually, ironically, it was right around the foundation of combatants for peace, unbeknownst to me. Um, and 
And I had a friend who um, like basically had just run from a terror attack and was telling about it. And there was a lot of pain and fear and hate in the society at that time. And um, after that visit, I just lost hope. I said, I, I don't want anything to do with this place. This is too hard. This is too painful. Um, I'm, I'm just going back and I'm going to wash my hands of this. Um, and then flash forward um, however many years <laughs> um, to two years ago, two and a half years ago in November. Um, and I was brought to the film Disturbing the Peace, which is a film about combatants for peace and the founders. And after that screening, there was a couple of the activists um, and the movie producer and director were on a Q&A. And I remember one of the activists was asked the question, so after everything you've been through, how do you, how do you forgive? Um, because you remember the people sitting up there, there are people who had actively participated in violent activities on both sides, and yet they were sitting there as brothers. Um, and he turned to her, looked her straight in the eye, put his hand on his heart and said, you just forgive. Mm. Um, and it was so genuine and so moving. Um, and for me, that was the moment that I was hooked. Um, and I saw this movement as a way to move forward that um, I'd never seen anywhere else. That if people who um, had served in combat units in the Israeli military and who had spent long periods of time in prison, in Israeli prisons, Palestinians, um, if they could do it, if they could break those bridges and work together for a better future, then anybody can. So how, and this question is for both of you, how is uh, this organization different from other organizations that brings Palestinians and, and Jewish communities together? Uh, we've seen um, there are skeptics who would say, you know, that having this dialogue will not take us anywhere. The first thing is that Combatants for Peace is not just a dialogue. Um, dialogue and community building are very important. They're core core to the work that Combatants for Peace is doing, um, specifically building community. But it's a lot more than that. It is a nonviolent civil resistance group that is working against the occupation um, and working actively to create a better world. So we're not just coming together, you know, everybody eats hummus and falafel and then <laughs> goes back home. Um, and one side goes back to a comfortable home in Tel Aviv and the other side goes back perhaps to a refugee camp. Uh, what they're doing is they're working for a just and lasting peace by building a community based on dignity, respect, and equality. Um, and so I'll give an example. Uh, recently, last summer, uh, the Israeli military declared that they were going to destroy the village of Khan al-Akhmar, uh, which is situated just east of Jerusalem because they wanted to build a settlement block throughout the center of the West Bank, which would effectively cut the West Bank in two and destroy the possibility of a future of a Palestinian state. So combatants for peace, amongst many other uh, activist groups, came together to Khan al-Akhmar and staged what was effectively a three-month sit-in. Uh, they trained themselves in the techniques of nonviolence. Uh, they literally used their bodies to sit inside the bulldozers when like inside the scoops like and they would put their bodies in those shovels so that to put themselves between um the military equipment and the families um and in the end the demolition was indefinitely postponed um and it effectively saved the possibility of two states um mm. and 
In some ways, more importantly, it saved this community of 300 people in their elementary school. Um, and so, yes, dialogue is really important and talking and community building is extraordinarily important. Um, and also important is working together actively in civil resistance to build something better. I'm I'm assuming for both of you, probably combatants for peace um, is where you first interacted with the other, right? If I'm not wrong, like is is that the case? Like, yeah. So no, actually, I have had other interactions, and and my transformation was uh, prolonged. Like it was over several periods. My first, of course, interactions were when I first went to Palestine and I crossed the checkpoint and I had to deal with the Israeli soldiers. Hmm. Um, but then my first positive interaction was with, in fact, Amir Ahad, the Israeli journalist, um, who was actually reporting from Ramallah. And I was really impressed by the fact that she wasn't afraid to be there uh, because she was really genuinely in solidarity with Palestinians. Hmm. Uh, she was Jewish, but... Uh, she stood for what she believed was right. And I really respected that about her. And it challenged my, uh, my reduced, you know, my, my monolithic view of the Israelis and the Jews that they are one evil thing, right? Hmm. Um, and several others, like I met others who were, uh, you know, activists, Israeli, uh, Jewish Israeli activists. Uh, so it made me realize, no, there are different types of Israelis, those who stand for what is right and those who are, uh, you know, uh, unwilling to see what the occupation is doing. Um, and then in the negotiations itself, um, I uh, because I interacted with Israeli interlocutors and counterparts, I saw the variety and diversity within Israeli communities, right? So I, I there were times when, of course, we, we would be chatting with each other, uh, like on, on the breaks, and that really gave me a window into Israeli society and saw how they are internally very divided on a lot of issues. Hmm. Um, and I started understanding how the peace process looks from their side, how we as Palestinians look uh, uh, from where they are standing and how our actions, how they perceive our actions. Um, as far as combatants, um, I got introduced, I knew of them while I was in Palestine, but again, for me, they were just one small group that, uh, as uh, Beth uh, uh, said, like from my perspective, it's all just another dialogue group, so I dismissed it. It was only when I was here in the States and uh, met with one of the members, uh, Suleiman Khatib, uh, where I was really impressed by how, uh, again, as Beth said, genuine, authentic he was. Mm. And more importantly for me as a Palestinian, I do... Uh, have reverence for those who have, you know, paid the price for the uh, conflict, right? Those who went to prison, those who, you know, lost a limb or, you know, had a, paid the cost. So for somebody like him who was in prison by the Israeli authorities, uh, to say the things they say, for me, he had more authority and I listened more carefully. And as Beth said, like, if he can forgive, if he sees, because I had no doubt that Suleiman really wanted the liberation of the Palestinian people and wanted what's best for Palestine. He's not one sort, like some sort of, you know, elite businessman who just wants, you know, his own interest to be served. No, he genuinely wants to serve the, our people. And he came to this conclusion from actually having paid the price and gone to prison. So that what what for me uh, makes combatants stand out compared to other organizations. 
is that this is a motley crew of people that actually have the respect of their communities because you, you cannot assail uh, their dedication and their, their, their uh, loyalty uh, to their people, right? To what's good. You might disagree with them politically, but you cannot really say that, oh, they're in it for the money or they're in it for their own political gains. No, these are people that actually did sacrifice. Uh, so that's why I think when they speak, they do speak with much more authority than other groups that are, might uh, not have as much credentials, let's say. Adding to that, I, I was at one of the events and that's how I met Beth. And I was so impressed uh, that you are presenting counter-narratives. And it's not just Palestinians and Israelis. It's, I think, on both sides of the conflict, somehow uh, it becomes incumbent on uh, people like Muslims would think that they have to support Palestinians and uh, Jews all over the world have to support Israel somehow. And so I also grew up with the narrative. We all did. Um, I was not yeah. part of the conflict, but there was a narrative that was taught to me in Pakistan growing up. And and seeing this organization and the kind of work that you guys are doing, it, it really is impressive. Can I yeah. say one point on that? Which is that I would challenge us all to think about what it really means to support Palestine or to support Israel. Because if we're locked in the narrative that to support one side or the other means to demonize the other side, then we are dooming the side we love to sacrifice. Because yeah. if you are if you are locked in the narrative that the other side is a problem, the other side is the issue, the other side is the evil, um, they're the occupier or they're the terrorist or whatever your narrative is, if you're locked in the narrative of my side is the victim, there's no hope and there's no solution. And so you're locked into a situation where violence is inevitable. But if you can broaden your own heart to realize that supporting one side is supporting both sides, that truly to support the Palestinian people or to support the Israeli people, the only way to do that is to humanize the other side and is to seek a nonviolent end and to see the other with dignity and with humanity, that's the real way to support um, either Israelis or Palestinians. And I think, again, what you said, um, uh, growing up, there was a narrative that was taught to you. And what we are teaching our kids is, is so crucial because we can continue teaching them the narrative that was taught to your parents or their parents, or we can change that narrative. And what you said is teach them empathy and, and understanding of the other side, because it seems like that's how this, this conflict may be resolved when, when people from both sides come together. Um, to that point, how did your communities respond and your families? What do they think of the kind of work that both of you are doing are are they in sync? Are they opposed to what you're doing? We we will start with Nizar. Nizar, why don't you? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Mixed baggage. There are those who um, uh, respect what I'm doing and think that what I'm doing is uh, good, even if they disagree with it. Uh, and others that think, um, like I have an uncle who thinks I'm, uh, you know, defaming my father's memory by working with Israelis. Hmm. Uh, and Jews, um, every, he, not, he never misses an opportunity when I, he's in. He's one of the, those who are in Dubai. He never misses an opportunity when I'm on the phone with him, of uh, reminding you, "Oh, don't uh, defame your father by what you're doing." Anyways, so I mean, yeah, that, not not everybody. And again, like another thing I wanted to add to that is, 
what again what makes uh, combatants different is um, that people in the diaspora can wait another hundred years for the conflict to resolve, right? Jews in New York and Palestinians in, in Dubai mm. uh, are not impacted, right? So if another uh, we don't have a solution in another hundred years, it's really fine with them. It's not like they're, they can't go to school or their life is at risk. And that is another thing that is important, which is that there is no, you know, Palestinian community and Israeli community and American community and Muslim community. There are those who believe that they are equal to everybody else and every human being has a right to dignity and respect and human rights, regardless of their tribe. And there are those who think it is okay to transgress the rights of others in order to get something that I want, right? Mm -hmm. So I have more respect to many Jewish Israelis uh, that, you know, fight the fight and, as we say, are co-resistors with us, then I have for some Palestinians who are, you know, like my uncle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who are, you know, not part of the fight and, in fact, as best said, part of the problem because they they hold more extremist views because they can afford to hold that extremist view, right, while not realizing that taking that position is actually hurting our relatives and our families in Palestine and in Israel. That you, by taking that uh, extreme position, you're letting us have a solution, and that's making us suffer more every day because you don't feel the pain. We are the ones who are feeling the pain, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'd want to echo Nizar's point, which is when I first got involved, I was sitting, again, bringing it back to Suli, uh, who Nizar mentioned earlier, sitting with him, and I asked him how, amidst all of it, how do you have any hope? And he said, look, I don't have the luxury. I don't have the luxury mm. to give up hope. Um because it's very easy, now these are my words, but it's very easy to be polarized and to maintain the, you know, evil of the other and the animosity when you're sitting in your comfortable home, um, on your couch, watching it from afar. But if you're the one living it, um, you don't have the luxury to give up hope. And you don't have the luxury to, if you really want to end it, you, you don't have that, you know, choice. Absolutely. And if I were to ask both of you, in, in your opinion, how will this conflict be eventually resolved or how can this conflict be resolved? Because we've seen what's going on. We, we've, we've seen there are more settlements and then we see, you know, both sides being so skeptical of each other. And then obviously some some there are issues with regards to power dynamic uh, of both sides. Um, one is a lot more powerful than the other. And sometimes when we have to bring two um, parties to the uh, negotiating table, we have to have same like equals to do that. Um, I don't think this is a conflict that's going to be solved by the leadership right now. Uh, the leadership on both sides, in my personal opinion, is yeah. inadequate mm. uh, and counterproductive and harmful. Uh, I think... When this is resolved, it's going to be because the people stand up and demand change. Um, and according to like some literature on nonviolent uh, resistance, it only takes something like two and a half or three three and a half percent of the population to stand up and demand change for an entire regime to shift. It's actually a higher percentage if it's a violent revolution. If it's nonviolent, it it takes less people. Um, because the power of nonviolence is so profound. And so 
I think, and I think as well the theory of change for combatants for peace, is that if the grassroots, if the people themselves demand um, that the occupation end and demand that we find a solution based on equality and dignity, whether that's two states, one states, five states, blue states, red states, it almost doesn't matter. What matters is the people are working together to demand a solution that works for everybody, that everybody can agree to, and that everyone feels respected and safe and secure and able to live a life of dignity. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would add to that that it's, um, as, as Beth said, like the leaders or the people in authority, because I, if they were leaders, they would tell people what they need to hear and not what they want to hear. And the people in authority are just telling people what they want to hear, right? So they, they are part of a problem. And when we have, you know, both communities, enough people in both communities who realize that and realize that, no, our future is in our hands. We are not, you know, um, we do have agency. And those politicians are just people who respond to our actions and our silence is what's emboldening them and making them take those extreme positions, then they start seeing that uh, their role. The other part of it where, I, again, I think the way combatant, combatants work uh, is effective is that it shows, it, it's a living example of how Israelis and Palestinians can work together on something and get positive results for both of them, right? So they, they are kind of the embodiment of how a future solution is going to look like. Well, the one state, two states, whatever it is, it's going to look like this Jewish person and this Palestinian person uh, working together on something because they believe and respect each other's dignity and uh, humanity. And that's what's going to change the conflict. So that rather, like I would challenge the way you framed it, it's not uh, uh, that the two sides are not Palestinians and Israelis. The two sides are those who are for uh, uh, you know, uh, dignity and equality for all, mm -hmm. and those who are for exclusive rights uh, for their uh, for their group, whatever that group is. So it's not Palestinians against Israelis; it's those who are for equality and those who are not for equality. That that's a great point. Now, I would also like to get your opinion on something else, and this is again, it uh, it feeds into understanding each other, and it's again not just. Palestinians and Israelis, but also um, the Jewish community and Muslim community, uh, diaspora as well. Um, because as a Muslim, sometimes I struggle with this notion of um, how what 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 constitutes anti-Semitism. And we've seen um, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar in 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 the news recently with regards to her tweets and controversy surrounding that. Although I would like to point out that she recently wrote um, an op-ed in Washington Post, which was which was beautiful, and she tried to clarify some of the misunderstanding. But as a Muslim, I struggle with this a lot. And I always think through, like, okay, a human rights lens. Because what, what I see is if, if I can um, criticize Saudi government for human rights violations, if I can criticize war crimes in Yemen or, or, um, or you know, human rights violations in Iran, even in Pakistan, um, Venezuela, wherever, uh, if I were to do the same, um, criticizing Israeli government um, for its human rights violations, would that constitute anti-Semitism? And how do I define it? It's a good, it's a really good question. It's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, first, I would say that criticizing a political government is 
different than criticizing a group of people based on religious faith. That Bibi's government is not the Jewish people. That That's a hard and fast line. Bibi's government is not Jewish people. Bibi's government is a government that retains power based on fear-mongering and um, in many ways is oppressing uh, both sides in this situation. Um, and that I can also see and understand where the Jewish community is fearful uh, because of so many years thousands of years of persecution, thousands of years of um, exiles and uh, genocides and being pushed out and seen as the other. And that ancestral trauma and ancestral pain is very, very real. Mm. Um, And certainly there are even places today in the world where Jews are not safe to be Jews. But I can also say for myself that I am more fearful as a Jew of the right-wing Israeli government than I am um, in many other places. And that it's really important to separate out criticism of the Israeli government and the Israeli government's war crimes from the Israeli people. It it becomes dangerous when we start to say Israelis X, Y, Z. Israelis, by and large, are good people. People are good people everywhere. People everywhere, by and large, in my opinion, are good people. And so how do we separate out criticism of a political regime from criticism of human beings? And that combatants for peace, at least, we are working for the sake of the people on both sides to create a better future for the people on both sides. Um, And so being really clear that this is a movement based on love. It's a movement based on love and integrity and acceptance and tolerance. And there's no room for hate and there's no room for fear mongering. Um, And that just as you can be an American who loves America and therefore coming from that place of love criticizes Trump, you can be a Jew, you can be an Israeli who comes from a place of love and criticizes the government. Can you be pro-Israel and also be be anti-settlements, anti-occupation? Is that possible, Beth? Absolutely. I think Mm. in, in my personal opinion... The only way to truly be for Israel and its people is to work against settlements and to work against occupation. I think the occupation is the single biggest threat to Israel today. Um, that In what ways? I'll, I'm going to answer this with a story. Hmm. So one of the founders of Combatants for Peace, he was in one of the most Israeli, he was in one of the most elite um, military units in Israel, the most elite, actually, combat unit. And his unit was stationed in the West Bank. Um, They did all sorts of things that, looking back now, he is traumatized in his own soul for having been forced and commanded to do those things. And when he was, I believe, 19 or 20 years old, his sister, who was 14 years old, 
was killed in a suicide attack. Uh, she was buying books for school, just starting high school. And he had that choice in that moment to surrender to hate and fear and lose himself and lose that part of himself that was full of love. And just, he could have chosen to be consumed by hate and fear. And instead, he stepped out. He actually left the military at that point. And he said, I'm not going to engage in this violence anymore. Hmm. I'm done. I want to work for a different way. And that was his choice. And in my opinion, that saved so much of who he is as a human being. Um, yeah. And um, I was on your website uh, and I would urge all my listeners to check out the website. It's cfp.org. Or afcfp.org, American Friends of Combatants for Peace. <laughs> and I was reading um, a profile of one of your members and she mentioned something that really resonated with me. She said that this this friendship between Palestinians and Israelis is, is a brave friendship. And that word just was so powerful. I think when we uh, let go of hate and when we let go of all the anger and, and we forgive, as you said, that's the most um, beautiful thing we can do for our communities. Now, going back to the governments, Nizar, I wanted to get your opinion on, on Palestinian government because we hear a lot about Israeli government and, and uh, we, we criticize Netanyahu's government, rightfully so. Um, but I would also like to get an idea of what you think um, Mahmoud Abbas's government looks like and what what role are they playing in, in, in conflict resolution? Because I see a lot of skepticism and a lot of criticism of, uh, of the Palestinian government as well. Sure, and, and there's different reasons for the criticism. Um, the, the, um, what, what I need to clarify is that for, uh, in fact, uh, many Palestinians, if not the majority of Palestinians, um, the argument for the peace process is a flawed one because they argue that, uh, you know, nonviolence doesn't work with the Israelis. Look at Hezbollah, look at uh, Hamas. When they attack Israel, Israel actually does respond and Hezbollah managed to kick Israel out of South Lebanon, and Hamas managed to kick Israel out of Gaza, and so on and so forth, right? So there is this skepticism towards uh, diplomatic and nonviolent uh, means. Therefore, Abbas himself, being somebody who was a proponent for a, a diplomatic solution from the uh, mid-70s, in fact, uh, at least was consistent. And he kept promising uh, the Palestinian people that uh, uh, while it is an arduous, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, road, uh, we will. Uh, it is the most uh, uh, effective road to get our uh, liberation, and it's just a question of the Israeli uh, community realizing that we are serious about peace, we are serious about reconciliation. They will meet us halfway, and we'll get, uh, you know, our state and our freedom. Uh, that has not transpired. So even those people who, oh, those Palestinians that were. Uh, uh, willing to engage the two-state solution and the peace process have been disillusioned by his performance. What I want to add to that is, uh, and to what also Beth mentioned, to tie it back to what Beth mentioned, um, the, the, while it is 
very commendable and uh, uh, admirable when people transcend hate and act in an act of love. From the perspective of the Palestinian community, what they want is freedom, mm. and what they want is their you know human dignity and their rights. And the conversation is not a pacifist conversation; it's a, a pragmatic one. What is the most effective way to get our rights? Mm. And a, a lot of the traction that you get, or like the, the, the what resonates for the Palestinian people when it comes to the work of combatants, is when combatants make the connection of how when we as Palestinians use violence, right, the Israelis use violence back at us, right? Mm. So explaining, like showing the, the effect of how, uh, 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 how do you say, like it's, it's a, virtu- it's a uh, uh, vicious cycle, right? That the same way that we resist the Israeli occupation and as much as Israel, the Israeli military does things to us, we are steadfast. Likewise, the Israeli community is steadfast when it comes to Palestinian violence. So we need to stop using violence because it is not effective, right? Mm. And once we we unhinge, and in fact, like the argument, I, I heard one of them say uh, two or three days ago, like our job is not only liberating ourselves, it's also liberating the Israelis from their fear of us, right? That a lot of the, the, the even the cruelty of Israeli soldiers is in fact coming from an insecurity and of, of a fear of the Palestinians. And that, if we really are serious about change and we're not those, you know, Palestinians in the diaspora who are sitting in the couch and watching all of this, we are the ones who are suffering at the checkpoints and in the prisons. If we are serious about change, we need to think about what is going to work with the Israelis. What is the stuff that we need to be doing as Palestinians for the Israelis to feel safe, for the Israelis to feel that we are uh, uh, reliable partners. Uh, And that is something that, uh, and this is why I tie it back to uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, as much as he himself believes in that, he failed miserably mm-hmm. in leaving the Palestinian people in that conversation for a variety of reasons. Of course, corruption is one of them. He's just not a man of the people. He's a bureaucrat, and he completely does not connect with the populace. He did not, he did not, he's not a Mandela, he's not a Gandhi, he's not a Martin Luther King, who speaks to the pain and to the suffering of the Palestinians and in ways that resonate and in ways that inspires them uh, into action. He's just seen as this bureaucrat, this diplomat, this politician who, you know, has his dividends. He's almost, in fact, the majority believe that he's invested in the status quo and does not want a resolution because he wants to continue to be president. And in fact, he's like been president for 12 years. So that's, that's, the, the, the challenge as far as he's concerned, and I'll end it with what Beth again also mentioned, is that I don't think the solution is going to come from Al-Mazin. It's going to come from the streets, from the rank and file of both communities who are going to pull the politicians into a, 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 a resolution and into what would, uh, uh, into a reconciliation that the people are pushing for, not that the politicians are going to be uh, pushing for. And to to both of your points, I would like to bring in a third stakeholder, the U.S. And so we know that U.S. is not a neutral broker in this. So we don't even have to go um, into that discussion. What role do you think, or if any, do you think um, U.S. could play um, in a peaceful resolution of, of this conflict? Or, or do you guys think that U.S., can't play a role because U.S. is biased at the end of the day. I think the U.S. has to play a role. 
And I say that because the U.S. is already playing a role. That we, as American taxpayers, as an American government, give billions of dollars to the Israeli military. But the catch is all of that money is funneled back to United States military defense contractors. So we say we're actually giving it to the Israeli military. We're giving weapons to the Israeli military. We're giving money into the pockets of United States military defense contractors. So when we think about that critically, what we're actually doing is we are profiting as Americans off the bloodshed of other people. And because of that, regardless of neutral broker, not neutral broker, we make money when they fight. Like that's Mm -hmm. the bottom line. So if we're going to challenge the status quo, I would say it's our responsibility to challenge the status quo. And how do we do that? I think the first thing is banding together in our communities, um, overcoming hate, starting dialogue within our own communities. Um, and demanding change, not like challenging ourselves to step out of the narrative of what's comfortable. It's very comfortable to demonize the other from your couch. Mm. And I think, again, addressing the fear, what what Nizar said was was so true that it's... Um, there are some hard facts. Uh, occupation is a fact. Um, increase in settlements is a fact. Uh, the fact that... Jewish community is scared um, of the other. That's a fact too. The, this fear has to be addressed. Persecution has to be addressed. And, and that cannot be done in isolation or by living in silos and and hating at each other. Um, so, Nizar, what do you think? How do you see um, U.S. role in this conflict? I would agree the U.S. has an indispensable uh, role just because of it being a superpower and special relationship not only with Israel, but also countries in the region, the, 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 the convening power of the U.S. is unparalleled. So there is a lot that the U.S. can play in both positive and negative ways. And one of the negative ways is what Beth mentioned, is that uh, uh, whether, I mean, it, it's a very disgusting truth, but in fact, uh, the, the conflict is the testing ground of American weapons. It's as simple as that. When you go to military shows, they show how this weapon was used in Gaza and why it was effective and so on and so forth. So, yes, there is a hard, like, just follow the money. Uh, but that's not everything, of course. Uh, and it goes, it ties back to we, the American citizens, we, the government, this continues to be a democracy for now. <laughs> the government is answerable to the people. So the, the, the theory of change is that we need the American people to uh, you know, open their eyes and realize that it's a lie when they are told, oh, this is a primordial conflict. These guys always fought each other. That is actually incorrect and a lie. Precisely, uh, like, the lie is to convince the American people that uh, Israelis and Palestinians will never agree because this is an ethnic or a religious conflict. It is not. Mm-hmm. And when they say this, they say this because it's in their interest, those in power are in their interest to perpetuate the conflict, Right. Uh, what we need to do is to, uh, you know, pull the veil from that lie and show them that, no, here is a, a Palestinian who actually suffered and was tortured in Israeli jails, and he's sitting next to this Palestinian, uh, Israeli soldier who fought, uh, you know, Palestinians, 
and they are working together for a better future. No, it is not a fight between Palestinians and Israelis. It's a fight between those who believe in equality and those who do not believe in equality. And we in the U.S. are contributing to the problem and have a great stake in contributing a positive uh, uh, change, not least because of how uh, uh, important this conflict is to literally billions of people around the world. When when we connect the conflict to 9-11, this is not a superficial connection. Mm. When when somebody like Bin Laden uses and abuses the, the Palestinian suffering for his own, you know, uh, uh, extremist views, that's just being utilitarian, right? So there is a direct connection between American in, national interests, right, mm. and the conflict. Once we resolve this conflict, there are American national interests in world peace that get affected when we do this, right? And 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 the first, as I said, the the lie, the big lie that we've been fed here in the U.S. is that oh, it's it's um, you know it's an ethnic conflict, it's a religious conflict. Those people are just going to keep fighting each other, and, and it's their fault. And there's nothing we uh, we can do about it. That is a lie, and this, there's a lot that we can do about it. By as that said, like we need to demand it, and like us not demanding it is what lets the politicians get away with it. Can just to tag on to that for a minute. Um, when it comes to combatants for peace specifically, as an organization, we're not leaving it up to the leadership. We're not leaving it up to the United States government. We're not leaving it up to uh, the leadership in either Israel or Palestine or the United Nations or anywhere else. It's not about these top-down powers. The top-down powers do we really do we honestly think that those top-down powers really care? about the people. It's about the people saying, coming from their own hearts and saying, we want to build a better future. And that's truly the only way that these movements have been built historically, is that the people rise up and the people say, we're not willing to live with this anymore. And we want a better future. This conversation is so informative and it is so important, especially during these times. I wish we could talk about this a lot more. (laughs) I know Nizar has to attend a call. So just one last question before I wrap up. One word description, UN. What do you think? Is is UN playing a role? Can UN play a role? Anything on UN? Uh, Sure. I mean, yes. Again, they are another... You know, stakeholder that has, uh, you know, their part of the of the mess that they can contribute towards because they have resources and they have, uh, you know, good offices and what have you. Yes, the UN has a positive role today. I want to bring it back to the people again. That mm. the solution is going to come from the people coming from their own hearts, demanding a better future. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for this very very important discussion. And I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. This episode was my attempt to promote dialogue around this issue between two communities. Each of us has to decide now whether we want to pass on the same hateful rhetoric to our future generations or do we present counter narrative. Every human being should have the right to life, security and peace. 
Let's try to build a better world by at least listening to the other side. Don't forget to check out our website at www.alienchroniclespod.com. Also, if you have a story to share or any new ideas, please contact us at info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Chronicles Alien and you can find us on Instagram at The Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. 